0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The next contradiction was even more glaring and equally inexplicable. Schwartz asked if she and Betsy had gone door-to-door collecting money for cancer research. She, Pam, said they had not gone door-to-door, but were trying to raise money for a woman who was dying of cancer. When Schwartz asked how they were raising funds, Pam said, just door-to-door collecting. Uh, didn't you just say you didn't go door-to-door collecting? Did I? I don't know. Did I say that? You said it. I don't know. She said she gave the money they collected to Betsy, who didn't have any paperwork related to the effort. From Bone Deep. Untangling the Betsy Faria Case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz. closer, love mine. be mine. Cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love them, hate you. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast to episode 41, Can't See the Forest Through the Trees, on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the Betsy Furia murder case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Jill Schwartz. I am your host, Jill and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area. And I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. Each month, I will discuss a book that I pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. No boring timeline here, I present the story from the author's point of view. In the third episode of the series, called Second Cast, I will cast this story in a new light, examining the path not taken, adding the latest updates just to shake things up. I was fortunate enough to interview Russ Faria, Carol McAfee, and Faria cousin, Mary Anderson, at CrimeCon, which was so amazing. So subscribe so you do not miss this when it comes out. There's so much that I did not know about. CrimeCon was amazing, informative, professional, and utterly exhausting. Thank you, Kenovan Bell. For all the hard work in making this such a special weekend for us all, I already have my ticket for CrimeCon 2023 in Orlando. Come on, who's going? Let me know. Maybe I can set up a meetup. I ran into so many murder bookies in Las Vegas, it was really overwhelming. We hung out and I really enjoyed meeting you, talking about the books, the cases, what great conversations. I even handed out Murder Shelf Book Club t-shirts for them. So, wear them well and enjoy. And a personal thank you to new murder bookie, Shira Brosser lapointe who listened to Unsolved, the John JonBenet Ramsey trilogy, and was so positive and so complimentary, I want her to know I appreciate the kind words and support. Before we plunge into episode 41, a quick prayer for Brit of the Crime Junkie podcast who is recovering from a medical emergency, a brain bleed back a couple weeks ago in early May 2022. This is terribly upsetting news. Ashley Flowers and Britt inspired me to dare to create my own podcast. So I'm thinking of you, Britt, praying for you, and I hope you return to Crime Junkie soon. Okay, murder bookies. If you have not listened to episode 41 on Bone Deep, I suggest you do so before listening to this episode because it'll make a lot more sense. I delved into the murder of Betsy Faria, the police investigation, the arrest of her husband, Russ Faria, for Betsy's murder, and defense attorney, Joel Schwartz, his examination of the evidence, much seeming to point to another person, Pam Hop, the last person known to be with Betsy the night she was killed. Now, as murder bookies, you may already know that a law enforcement probable cause statement is a list of the facts where police established a reasonable belief that someone committed a crime. January fourth, twenty twelve, Lincoln County Sheriff Department, Detective Sergeant Ryan McCarrick filed one. The same day, Russ Furrier was arrested for his wife Betsy's murder, which was after forty two hours of interrogation by the police. The only problem was, in his defense attorney Joel Schwartz's opinion, this statement completely failed to establish anything let alone probable cause. While beginning with the facts, McCarrick sharply diverges into opinion. All right, here's an example. On entering the house, Russ should have seen Betsy's body immediately, not after putting down the dog food and taking off his jacket. Well, that's, that's pure speculation, not a fact. McCarrick also listed evidence as human blood inside Russ's baseball cap and on the switch plate in the master bedroom. Many of Pam Hupp's statements were presented as unchallenged gospel truth. These included comments such as, quote, Hupp said Russell wasn't very nice to Elizabeth, or Hupp said Elizabeth was growing increasingly uncomfortable with Russ, end quote. It also referenced Betsy and Pam changing the beneficiary on the life insurance policy. Swartz believed that the only possibly damaging fact presented was that from the Faria House search was that substance illuminated with luminol might have been blood, with McCarrick stating it as fact, which indicated the cleaning of the, quote, crime scene on the vinyl floor between the area where Elizabeth was found and on the patio, end quote. Blood evidence was also found on the kitchen floor, the sink, handle of the drawer where towels were kept, indicating a, quote, prior knowledge of the towel's location, end quote. Now remember this, I will get back to it, I promise. McCarrick's final shot was Russ failing a polygraph, and on being notified of this, requested counsel. McCarrick's signature agreed that any false statements made by him are punishable by law. There may be some false statements here, guys. Schwartz had the lab results, which found no blood on any of the items listed by McCarrick. No blood, as in zero. None found in the sinks, the shower, drains, pipes, contradicting what they told Russ when he was arrested. No blood on the washcloth or towels either. Stains on a brown towel had DNA that was a mix of Russ and Betsy. And I mean, it's their home. I assume they do use their own towels. Russ's DNA should be on his bathroom towels. And the best news was there was no blood on Russ's clothing. Given the brutality of 55 wounds inflicted in a knife attack, the killer would have to be spattered with Betsy's blood, but Russ was clean, and the palm prints on the patio doors were Russ's, again, it's his house, and the clippings from under Russ's fingernails held only Russ's DNA, no one else's. Now, the DNA. The switch plate in the bedroom was stained with Betsy's DNA but also from a man who could not be Russ. So who was this man? The only evidence Schwartz knew that he'd actually need to address were the bloody stained slippers. Now he's confident that with no blood anywhere on Russ, what did bloody slippers have to do with Russ? He could really make a convincing argument that someone else had applied Betsy's blood to the slippers and then left them in an obvious place for the police to find part of framing Russ. All in all, Joel had found nothing that would hurt the defense. He wondered how prosecuting attorney Leah Askey could possibly misread witness statements so badly and let herself be manipulated by Pam Hupp. About Leah Askey, she had only been a prosecuting attorney for 18 months previously, a hometown girl who was elected to office. Leah Womack-Askey graduated from the University of St. Louis Law School, opening her own practice in 2006, and then ran for prosecutor four years later. While I get she's new to being a prosecutor, inexperience is not an excuse for filing a premeditated murder charge against Russ Faria without foundation. Later that night, as Joel reviewed document after document, Joel's 14-year-old son announced Quote, I know who did it, end quote. And Joel was kind of surprised. Well, who? And his son replied, Pam Hupp. So a ninth grader could look at the documents and figure it out. And just like that, it was June 25th, 2012, while listening to another video interview of Pam Hupp, Joel Schwartz's jaw dropped yet again. While complaining about all that she was juggling in her life, her health issues, selling a house, buying a new home, handling her mother's finances with her in a residential living facility, Pam says, quote, and if I really, I I hate to say it, wanted money. My mom's worth half a million that I get when she dies. My mom has dementia and doesn't know half the time who we are. I, I know this sounds morbid and stuff like that, But I'm a life insurance person, and if I really wanted money, there's an easier way to get it than trying to combat somebody who's physically stronger than me. I'm just saying. End quote. Oh my God. Here is Pam weighing the effort of killing Betsy versus her mom, concluding killing her mom would be easier for her and would be a lot more money. I mean, what? I understand how Joel felt. I felt that way reading the book. Joel thought that Pam Huck was, quote, an unfiltered font of inappropriate, off-the-wall, inexplicable comments, shockingly ill-conceived utterances that were often self-incriminating, end quote. Yep, that sounds about right. Detective Sergeant Ryan McCarrick, sitting with Joel as he watched, didn't even blink at that comment. He didn't write a note. He never reacted. Had he even been listening and heard what Pam said? We don't know. Detective McCarrick met with Pam to discuss her statements, which were all recorded. McCarrick touched on a problematic subject, the insurance policy. McCarrick told Pam that, quote, the biggest doubt that they're going to try to create is that you, prior to her murder, wound up being the beneficiary of 150000 in cash. What you're originally telling investigators is that she wanted you to do this to try to make sure the kids are being taken care of because she's afraid Russ and the kids will blow through it. However, now you have the money and have not turned any of it over to the family or kids. End quote. That's correct, said the unflappable Pam. And the carrot continues, quote, that's a huge problem. I'm not telling you you've got to do that. I'm just telling you it's going to be a huge issue of debt, end quote. And now Pam rewrote history, quote, I think if you really look at my wording, it wasn't exactly she wanted me to make sure the girls are taken care of, end quote, as she justifies keeping the money for herself. She rattled off a litany of the girls' problems and issues, and Pam now claimed that Betsy said, Do not let them get their hands on it or the family because the family will give it to them and they'll piss it away. End quote. Pam also glibly dismissed $150,000 as not a lot of money. She hadn't spent a penny of it, not even buying her new house. McCarrick brought up creating a trust for Leah and Mariah, Betsy's daughters, as this would certainly help the prosecution's case if it was set up before the trial, now a month off. Pam said, that's what she said originally, and that it would be set up before the trial. And then, the million-dollar question, McCarrick asked, quote, do you have anything to do with Betsy's murder, end quote. Well, at least someone asked her. Pam replied, quote, no, absolutely not. I'm not physically able to do it, end quote. And McCarrick told her, he wasn't really suggesting she killed Betsy. He was just demonstrating what the defense would do. <sighs> okay. Finally, Pam and McCarrick got to the contradictions in Pam's statements, as she needed to seriously commit to one of her versions of where Betsy was when Pam left. One, on the couch under a blanket, or two, waving goodbye from the front door. Now ask yourself, why are there differing versions? Hmm. Pam responded with a rambling monologue that was either completely evasive or revealed a memory so compromised it destroyed her credibility as a witness. Quote, she was on the couch because she was going to put in a movie, and I want to say she walked into the door. Now, she may have been still on the couch because she had her blanket. She always put her blanket on her and she had it on her. Right now, And it may just make sense to me. She walked me to the door, but she could have been still on the couch. She may not have. It all happened really fast, and I'm used to having her walk me to the door. But she could have been still on the couch. She was often on that couch, you know, end quote. That is her actual unchallenged statement, word for word. And McCarrick accepted this convoluted half sentence, reversing dithering as a committed answer not seeing the evasion in that response. Did that fix the contradictions? I don't think so. What about her series of calls to Mark, Betsy, and Janet, Betsy's mom? Pam explained that husband Mark and Betsy were worried about her driving at night, which had gotten worse since her fall. Well, wait a sec, though. If this is risky, why had Pam volunteered to drive Betsy home? Answer, quote, because she wanted to go home, end quote. If you recall, Betsy and Russ had arranged it so he'd pick Betsy up from chemo until Pam inserted herself into this. Betsy had told her she was visiting with her friend Bobby and do not come as she wanted time with Bobby for herself. But no, 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 Pam showed up anyway. Thus, Pam wound up driving Betsy home when it was entirely unnecessary. Unless Pam wanted to be home alone with Betsy knowing that Russ was gone to game night. Certainly could be, right? McCarrick's report on this interview said, quote, I asked Pam about the subtle differences in her statements to me from the statement she originally gave me. Pam said she had a documented memory loss due to her accident, which involved a head injury. Pam said I could ask her questions again in two days and her statements would probably be somewhat different. End quote. Wow, and this is the prosecution's star witness. September eleventh, 2012. After a delay, the trial was moved to November before Circuit Judge Dan Dildon. At Askey's request, a second lawyer had been reassigned to assist her, Assistant Prosecuting Attorney Richard Hicks. Meanwhile, nine months since the murder, Russ sits in a jail cell. Schwartz got the unattainable million-dollar cash bond, reduced to 25000 but Russ still lacked the resources to raise it. As he left court, Joel Schwartz overheard Askey saying to a colleague that Schwartz was, quote, the biggest asshole defense lawyer, unquote, she ever encountered. Unable to resist, Joel went over to Askey saying, quote, Your depth perception is miserable when you whisper, and you're wrong. I'm not even in the top three assholes in my office, end quote. And this is the beginning of great antagonism between the defense and the prosecution. Joel recognized that Askey was reluctant to try the case before Judge Dildine. And if rumors were true, the judge was slated to retire soon. And then shenanigans. On November 16th, Askey filed a nolliprose motion. Dismissing the charges against Russ on the grounds that the prosecution had decided not to prosecute, which canceled the scheduled trial before Judge Dildine, got rid of him. Then the same day, Askey had a grand jury return a new, identical indictment against Russ on the same charges, restarting the pre-trial process all over, but without Judge Dildine. Lesson learned: It takes an asshole. To know an asshole, Leah Askey. Judge Dildine did retire, and a brand spanking new judge, Christina Kunza Menemeyer, was assigned to the case. She had never participated in a jury trial during the months, just months, murder bookies, that she served as an assistant prosecuting attorney, nor while in private practice, nor while getting her law degree from the University of Missouri Columbia in 1997. She had tried a civil case right after being elected judge, but the Rasferia case would be her very first venture ever into felony criminal law. What could go wrong? By March 18th, 2013, 15 months after Betsy's murder, her mother, Janet, was angry. Her daughter had been killed and her granddaughters cheated out of their inheritance by that money-hungry bitch Pam Huck. Yet in Janet's mind, Pam was a cheater, not a killer, which Joel Schwartz had to contend with. With Janet's beliefs set in stone, this could be messy. Why did Janet believe Pam hadn't committed the murder? Janet responded, quote, because I know who did it. That's why. Russ, no ifs and buts, end quote. She was certain that Russ loved Betsy but this was a murder of passion. Betsy took his name off the insurance policy, and nobody stamps somebody 55 times unless they loved that person and were betrayed. Janet believed that Russ got home from game night, angry Betsy took him off the policy, and killed her, cleaning up the blood. Had anyone indicated when Russ got home that night? Janet replied, McCarrick. It seemed like the good detective sergeant was making sure the witnesses had the state's talking points down pat. The next day, the big, bald cop became the most hostile witness Joel Schwartz had ever deposed. Remember, he's an attorney for 25 years. Schwartz began with first responders advising McCarrick that Betsy's body was cold and stiff when they arrived. McCarrick described this as an opinion from a medic that she could have been stiff. All right, then. Hadn't EMT Mike Patroki and Fire Captain Robert Sharmack said that, too? McCarrick admitted that Betsy had been stiff. Asked what that means, McCarrick replied, quote, We're making a lot of assumptions, end quote. Patrocchi and Sharmack had 50 years of experience between them. And after batting the issue around for a while, McCarrick finally admitted a cold, stiff body means it's been dead for a couple of hours. Yeah, I would hope a police officer would know that. He got there, though. He did. He did get there. But McCarrick wouldn't just accept their professional opinions. He didn't know these guys. Schwartz was kind of surprised. Quote, so for you to validate an opinion, you need to know them personally? End quote. McCarrick replied, quote, yeah, if I'm going to validate somebody's opinion, yeah. End quote. Joel pounced. Quote, is Pam Hupp telling you the truth about where she was that night? End quote. (laughs) Great segue, Joel. How well did McCarrick know Pam Hupp, yet he accepted everything she said as law? Thrown, McCarrick replied, quote, "Uh, I don't know. I did speak with her personally, and I didn't speak to those other individuals. And based on my opinion of speaking to her, I did not visibly observe any deception. End quote. "Uh, What was Pam wearing that night? Joel asked. McCarrick had no idea. Did he believe Pam's statement that she left Betsy's twenty or thirty minutes after she called her husband at seven oh four PM? Quote, my opinion doesn't matter, sir, end quote. But wait, McCarrick filed that probable cause statement that triggered Russ's arrest. Well yes, it was based on what McCarrick knew at the time. So Schwartz asked if much of the information in the probable cause statement was now known to be incorrect. Dodging, McCarrick said he had no reason to believe Russ's gaming buddies were lying and Russ was at Mike Corbin's and left at 9 p.m. Okay, significant admission. How could Russ be home to kill Betsy at 7.30 if he was at game with witnesses from 6 to 9 p.m.? Now, a logical person would conclude that Russ couldn't have done that, but that's not what happened. McCarrick stated that he believed Russ got home sometime around 9.30 or so, and then killed Betsy, and then using life-and-time magic, sped up the rigor mortis that normally would set in by 11.30pm so it would set in earlier. All right, McCarrick knew Betsy hadn't answered incoming phone calls from 7.20 to 7.30pm, but he wouldn't admit that she was likely to have been struggling or dead at that point. So frustrating. McCarrick insisted the charges against Russ were based on 105 leads and six months of police work. Yeah, but with confirmation bias and groupthink going on the whole time, McCarrick. Joel did get McCarrick to admit that some facts McCarrick cited in the probable cause statement came from a single source, Pam Hub. For example, Russ putting a pillow over Betsy's face and Betsy writing a letter to Pam, a letter that had never been found. That Pam was the only beneficiary receiving $150,000 from changes in a life insurance policy made only four days before the murder, and that Pam was the only one home alone with Betsy two hours before she was confirmed dead, seemed to be unbelievably irrelevant to McCarrick. Schwartz asked if Pam's husband confirmed what time his wife arrived home. McCarrick didn't know and then grudgingly admitted he would have handled the interview with Mark Hupp differently. Would McCarrick agree that the actions of Russ and everyone else involved in the investigation except Pam Hupp were accounted for until nine o'clock PM? Yes, McCarrick agreed. Now Schwartz called McCarrick out for strongly suggesting that Pam set up the trust fund for Betsy's daughter before the trial, which may be official misconduct. Nay, McCarrick said he'd asked her three or four times to open the trust just before the then-scheduled trial in July. Why? Why had he done that? Now, I'm paraphrasing McCarrick when he explains that it was what the family wanted so they'd have peace of mind. When asked if it wasn't because he thought it would strengthen the state's case, McCarrick agreed, saying, quote, oh, I'm sure it'll look better for us. Yeah, absolutely. End quote. Did McCarrick know that Pam had been fired from two insurance jobs for forging signatures? No, he did not. Then McCarrick said Russ's story had changed more than anyone else's in the case, listing them. One. Russ reversed the order of two places he had stopped on the way to Mike Corbin's between 5 p.m. and 6 p.m. before the murder took place. And two, Russ said he got home at 9.45 p.m. minutes after he made the 911 call at 9.40 p.m. Three, Russ had said he laid on the floor next to Betsy's body but got no blood on his clothes. Impossible in McCarrick's way of thinking. And four, Russ failed the polygraph. Side note, all right, there is no documentary evidence that Russ actually took a polygraph. Leah Askey could not find any copy of the test. The audio and camera were not working at the time. Did they fake it? Police can lie to a suspect about polygraph results, but the test has to be turned over to the defense attorney. Failure by the state to disclose a faux test is unconstitutional. So this is an issue. Okay. Russ's story had changed. That's fair. But then this is also fair game. Hadn't Pam Hupp been excused for telling different versions of events due to a brain injury caused by a fall? That was part of her explanation. Had McCarrick reviewed her medical records? No, McCarrick had not. He just believed what Hupp said, even though he didn't know her personally. Inconsistency? or just tunnel vision. Incompetence? Maybe it's all. Schwartz nailed McCarrick down on Pam's subtle differences in her statements regarding when she left Betsy. Were these subtle or major differences? He replied, quote, yeah, that was why I asked her to follow up with it, end quote. But Russ stated that he was home at 945 versus 935 and mixed up two stops he made on the way to Mike Corbin's and this proved he was a guilty man. Right? This guy is just awful, just awful in my opinion. Did McCarrick recall Janet Meyer saying that Pam told her she hadn't gone in to Betsy's house? No, no, he did not. Schwartz pointed it out in McCarrick's report. Is that a big difference to you that she did versus she did not go in the house? Quote: No, if she's just been told her friend is dead and she corrects herself immediately on a statement. I can deal with it, end quote. Schwartz commented, quote, so when Russ knows his wife is dead and he's making a statement that night and he got the order of two stores wrong, at least initially, that is a big deal to you, end quote. And Carrick said, quote, when you're being asked what your chain of events was and you're under the gun for murder, yeah, I consider that to be a decent deal, end quote. McCarrick did agree that Russ's correction about the order of his visits to the store had been confirmed by police. I think being a suspect would make one more anxious and more upset and more likely to mix up places where you've been hours before a murder took place. Then the entire deposition fell apart. Schwartz said, quote, Pam Hupp's never been confirmed as to where she was, what she did, and she's not under the gun and McCarrick interrupted him. Quote, What's your question? End quote. Back and forth a few times, Schwartz finally asked, quote, Pam Hupp's stories as to what she did and where she went have never been confirmed, end quote. McCarrick snarled, quote, We answered that thirty minutes ago. End quote. Schwartz called him out on obstinacy, and the disagreement hardened into some shouting with the prosecution declining to ask any more questions. Well, that went well, don't you think? Next up, Pam Hupp. Quote, I did not kill Betsy, end quote, came the unsolicited declaration from Pam. She went on to say that she'd sold life insurance for 12 years, and delving into this, Pam said she sold Mark his life insurance policy, and look, he's still alive. Joel was shocked. And Pam smugly said, quote, I mean, I guess if I wanted a lot of money, I could kill him instead of her, end quote. This was the second time Pam was analyzing the dollar value in killing someone besides Betsy Correa. Would she take a polygraph? No, no, she didn't want to take one now. Pam also denied sending her doctor a note asking him to say that she couldn't take a polygraph for medical reasons. Now, this is just dumb. Because Joel has a copy of the note that has been verified, and that is exactly what Pam had done. Asked her doctor to send a note excusing her from the polygraph for medical reasons. So why had Betsy left her the money? Pam says, quote, she trusted me. Her family dynamic at the time had a bunch of stuff going on with it that she couldn't trust with the money, end quote. So inheriting the money looks like a motive to me. Why had she driven Betsy home that night? Well, because she asked me to. Incorrect. Joel says, quote, actually, you asked her if you could take her home, end quote. Pam denied this, saying that Betsy has asked her at chemo. So the text messages that indicated Pam asking Betsy were wrong. Yeah, yeah, they were wrong. Asked what she'd done that night. Pam said when she got home, her husband was lying on the sofa watching TV. She watched a bit, took a shower, went to bed, and another shower when she got up. She didn't like to mess around with someone who's been sweaty all day. The ever inappropriate Pam. Why had she gone to chemo at all when Betsy said she wanted to spend some one-on-one time with a visiting friend, Bobby Wan?" Pam explained that she probably was driving and hadn't seen the text. And that was incorrect. Pam had responded to the text with, quote, bummer, indicating she had read the text, responded, and ignored Betsy's wants. Pam didn't remember this. Joel asked why Pam was getting Social Security disability. Oh, she wasn't sure of the classification, but... She had dropped foot and balance problems from that two thousand and nine fall at work at United Healthcare. She had tripped, hitting her head on a filing cabinet. Quote. I have balance problems. I don't know what it's called. End quote. What symptoms did she have? Quote I fall down, I can get migraines, end quote. Does she have memory issues? Quote. Yes. Well, because you're asking me questions and I don't remember. End quote. She refused to let Schwartz have copies of her medical records, and she had stopped her doctor because she couldn't afford the visits. Her health insurance had lapsed, and she was not old enough to qualify for Medicare. Her last visit may have been on January 3, 2012, the day of her polygraph note. Pam was asked about working in insurance. She'd worked for 12 years, where she met Betsy Faria in October 2001 when she started with State Farm. He asked her about the forging signatures allegation, but Pam denied it had anything to do with her naming their colleagues as culprits. Hadn't she been let out? Yes. Was she accused of forging notary seals on documents? Quote, no, no one ever said any of that, end quote. Joel Schwartz intended to expose her as a pathological liar at trial. With so many lies, so many contradictions, what jury could trust anything that she said? The prosecution had no questions for their primary witness at this time. Then came the devastating setback. Circuit Judge Christina Menemeyer issued a catastrophic four-paragraph order, the worst Joel Schwartz had seen in his career, on May ninth, 2013. The judge prohibited the defense from arguing, presenting testimony, or evidence implying Pam Hupp may have been Betsy's killer. Schwartz would not be able to cross-examine Hupp in a way suggesting she had the motive and opportunity to kill Betsy, or even list the contradictory statements, nor about Pam being beneficiary to the insurance policy, not giving money to the daughters, nothing. What the hell? I mean, how do you put on a defense? Seriously? Judge and meyer agreed with Leah Askey's position. None of those issues involving Pam qualified as a direct connection to the murder, a legal prerequisite under Missouri law. So, for example, Russ's bloody slippers were directly connected. His claim Betsy committed suicide, direct connection. Pam inheriting Betsy's insurance was not directly connected to the murder. Well, only if it was Pam's motive, which was not going to be allowed to be explored. Good grief. The judge's decision was absolutely, categorically wrong under the law, and Joel Schwartz just about lost his freaking mind. For there to be direct connection, case law had established that a person with a motive and opportunity to commit a crime had a direct connection. Checkbox. Those who make inconsistent and contradictory statements have a direct connection. Checkbox. Who was with the victim at or near the time of death had a direct connection. Checkbox. Case law gives the defense the unrestricted right to cross-examine a witness who has any kind of interest in the outcome of the trial, such as keeping $150,000 in life insurance. Checkbox again. or helping convict someone else of a crime the witness may have committed. Check box again. All, all these boxes are checked for Pam Hupp. <laughs> L- listen, she has more of a connection than Russ Faria does. Even though Joel Schwartz painstakingly walked Judge Mann through the scores of Missouri cases, like a hundred, if not more, that supported the defense's right to treat Pam Hop as a suspect, Menemeyer and Meyer ruled no. Still, Joel Schwartz didn't give up, making repeated requests for the judge to reverse her decision without success. At one point, he carted in a huge stack of cases to support his position, and he risked a contempt of court citation by proclaiming, quote, Judge, I don't know what I have to do to get you to listen. Would it work if I stripped down and banged my head against the bench? End quote. Now, I hope you understand why I went into all this detail so you would understand just how horrific this decision is. It is a huge puzzle piece in figuring out what happened when we get to the end of this. But, Russ still has an invulnerable alibi between 5 and 9.30 p.m. Forensics would prove that Betsy had been dead for hours before Russ arrived, calling 911 at 9.40 p.m. Even with the incompetent judge, the jury would hear that Pam had been the last person to see Betsy alive in a place about the time she was killed. Russ hadn't had a speck of blood on him, even though Betsy had been savagely stabbed 55 times. The slipper had been dipped into the blood, not walked through the blood. About a week before trial, Leah Askey called and asked Joel what it would take to make a deal for a guilty plea. And Schwartz laughed, quote, Dismiss the charges against Russ and hire me as a special prosecutor. I guarantee you I'll get a conviction against Pam Hunt, end quote. Askey was not amused. And trial began. Five minutes into Leah Askey's opening statement, she handed Joel grounds for his first motion for mistrial. She'd attacked Russ using his hysteria in the 911 call at finding Betsy and saying she had committed suicide. Askey said he was trying to convince himself, as well as the 911 operator. With Joel's objection and properly argumentative, Askey withdrew the statement. A few sentences later came, quote, Folks, this murder is about greed. You'll hear evidence the defendant was well aware that Betsy had three insurance policies totaling... <laughs> Objection, screamed Schwartz as his head exploded. In a sidebar with the judge, he argued that her ruling on motions, including one that very morning, prohibited either side from discussing the insurance policies. And here, Askey just raised the issue. Askey whispered, quote, What I said was that defendant knew she had three policies. That's what he tells the detectives, end quote. Furious, Schwartz asked for a mistrial. Co-prosecutor Richard Hicks stated, quote, The prosecution has not been prohibited from saying that. That's a black and white motive evidence. Three policies in his name, end quote. Schwartz was completely exasperated and said, quote, The state cannot get into the facts that there was an insurance policy that exists and then keep me from arguing that the policy had been changed Benefiting you know who. End quote. Judge Menenmeyer flipped through her file, noting that only the defense was barred from mentioning the change in beneficiary and arguing that someone else committed the murders. She denied the request for mistrial. I threw the book across the room. I just threw the book across the room. I mean, what else do you do in the readings? Asky picked up where she left off, and now attacked the game Russ and his friends were playing quote, it wasn't poker, it was a role playing game where a band of merry men dressed like hobbits, acting like monks and wizards, smoking pot and drinking beer, end quote. Hold, hold up a second, Leah. No one was dressing like hobbits, nor was anyone drinking alcohol that night, Miss Asky. Yes, they would smoked a little weed. So Leah lied to the jury. Now she characterizes Russ's text with his friend about what to do when one of them would be absent from game, the to game or not to game issue. Together, they orchestrated a plan to watch a movie. (laughs) the evil movie watchers. Then Russ called his mother, Lucy, saying he wouldn't make dinner. He had errands as the homicidal plan deepened. Every stop Russ made, was him deliberately getting a receipt and getting on video, laying out his alibi. The 911 call exposes Russ' erratic theatrical emotions, wailing, then calmly answering questions. Wow. Leah Askey suggested that there was a dog print on Betsy's pants, that cleaning agents had been used to clean up the floor, and how distraught Russ wanting to get close to Betsy to see if she was breathing, claimed he'd laid down next to her, but emerged without blood on him, utterly impossible. And Leah knew that the jury would return a guilty verdict. Not impressed by Askey, Joel Schwartz characterized this as a tragedy for the Faria Meyer family, especially for Russ, who had found his wife of 11 years dead, murdered a typical family that struggles to build a good life. They were rocked by a fatal diagnosis of Betsy's cancer in November. Betsy would stay over her mom's to be closer to chemo, and Russ was working and texting with her as usual about mundane things like buying dog food. Russ went to his normal Tuesday game from 6 to 9, a, quote, cheap, fun, easy way to enjoy their evening, end quote. But the absence of one player meant they couldn't play the usual role master So they decided to watch a movie instead. The big change in Russ's plans wasn't about the movie. Bessie texted Russ that Pam Hop would drive her home so Russ didn't have to. Heading out after 5 p.m., Russ just happened to be on video at his stops for gas, cigarettes, iced tea. This was not a deliberate calculation. I have to admit, I was thinking about this and I had no idea which of my stores or gas stations have cameras or even where they are. I've just never really thought about it. Maybe I should have as a murder bookie, but I I didn't. I don't know know what to tell you. The videos from the shops show Russ wearing the same clothes that he wore when the police seized them for testing. Four people would testify that Russ was at Mike Corbin's from 6 to 9 p.m. continuously the whole time. Cell phone tower records would confirm Russ was exactly the places he claimed evidence of the truth. As Schwartz read the text between Betsy and Pam Huff, Askey objected that it was hearsay. Ridiculous. Schwartz explained that the police had documented Betsy's texts when they examined the phone. No go. The judge agreed with the prosecution it was hearsay. And limited Joel from saying that Betsy and Bobby went to chemo together and a unexpected Pam showed up later. Here's another puzzle piece. Just hold on to it. Moving on. Schwartz emphasized how Pam inserted herself into Betsy's evening by going to Janet's house. Pam and Betsy left Janet's around 6.30 p.m., and they called Pam's hubby, Mark, when they arrived at the Faria home just after 7 p.m. Jurors learned that Betsy failed to answer three phone calls from 7.21 to 7.30, hopefully establishing that this is the window in which Betsy was murdered. Joel presented the cell phone evidence. Pam told police she made the 7.27 p.m. call to Betsy when she was almost home, 27 miles or 43 kilometers away. Analysis of the cell phone data put Pam in the same sector as the cell phone call to mark Hub at 7.04 p.m. right near Betsy's house. He raised Pam's inconsistencies changing her story to objection. Yeah, you knew it was coming. Sidebar discussion number two began. Assistant Prosecutor Richard Hicks complained to the judge that the cell phone data and Pam's inconsistent statements demonstrated that the defense was suggesting Pam committed this crime, which the judge had already ruled were inadmissible. Schwartz argued, quote, it's the facts and it's the evidence, end quote. Judge Menemeyer refused to allow it, prohibiting Schwartz from using this in his defense, striking the remarks from the record. Incredulous, Schwartz said this had nothing to do with Pam's motive or opportunity to commit the crime. Menemeyer snapped, quote, Just know, it's sustained, let's move on, end quote. Collect the puzzle pieces, guys. Schwartz returned to the jurors, explaining that the cell phone data analysis which uses pings from Russ's phones on cell towers, shows the earliest he could have arrived home was 9.38 p.m. He thought Betsy had killed herself, given she had threatened suicide in the past, as Betsy's sisters would confirm. Ann Hicks objected that it was hearsay. Schwartz said it was knowledge that the sisters had because they heard it, saw it, and lived it. And this would go back and forth for a while so Schwartz modified his words, saying that the jurors would hear an explanation of why Russ believed this. Joel went on, repeating what the EMT and first responders saw on reaching the house that night, coagulated blood and a stiff body. The bloody slippers, the prosecution's number one piece of evidence, Joel described as being dipped in blood because there were no bloody footprints anywhere in the home. Russ Faria's alibi was airtight with video evidence, receipts, and four witnesses as to his whereabouts when Betsy was killed. Betsy's daughters, Mariah, now 19, and Leah, 23, both testified for the prosecution that Betsy and Russ's marriage had a lot of bickering and fighting, punctuated by Russ cursing at Betsy. When asked if fear of Russ was a reason that Mariah chose to live with her grandma, she cried and trembled so badly she was given a glass of water. Leah acted similarly when asked to be more specific about the words Russ chose. Quote, the C word, end quote, replied Leah. When Askey asked Leah to tell the story of Russ and her dog, Schwartz objected. Judge Menenmeyer already ruled that no past bad acts of Russ could be presented, and this dog story was not shared with the defense as discovery demands. The judge deferred ruling until she could research the situation using the Missouri rules of evidence. And I really hope she has spent a lot of time reviewing the Missouri rules of evidence because this is a debacle. Meanwhile, Russ felt a deep ache in his heart hearing what two young women he had loved as his own daughters twisted and distorted stories of their lives together. The word that described his response betrayed. On cross-examination done without the jury present, this would preserve the evidence for use on appeal if necessary. Schwartz made the case that the relationship between Russ and Betsy had improved markedly after her 2009 cancer diagnosis. So the jury never heard this, yet another puzzle piece. Mariah went on to say it was true that she transferred nine thousand dollars from Betsy and Russ's bank account, which was legal as their accounts were linked. Wait, 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 wait. Russ gets arrested, and she moves nine thousand dollars from his account to her account. Why would you do that? I mean, it might be legal, but doesn't Russ need his money? I mean, isn't he trying to raise money to get out of jail for the trial? He's been in jail for a long time over over a year, pushing too. Um Yeah, I'm not a fan. When someone explains their behavior away with, it's legal. Is it moral? I, I just don't get this. Mariah also said she had not gotten any of Betsy's insurance money and that she assumed Pam Hupp received it. She also grudgingly admitted that her mother had been suicidal in the past and that once she had found a suicide note written by Betsy. Leah was only on the stand for a few minutes when Joel filed his second motion for mistrial. Askie had asked Leah to identify photos of the jewelry box Russ gave Betsy at Christmas as it leaned against the bedroom wall with a broken leg and chips to the finish. Schwartz asked what was the relevance, and Askie said, quote, It shows a struggle ensued. You don't typically struggle when you're committing suicide, end quote. Angrily, Schwartz spoke to Men and Meyer again that the prosecution was distorting Russ's suicide remarks and implying he lied to police, asking for them to be stricken from the record and for a mistrial. The judge ignored his mistrial request, but it did strike Askey's words, blocking the photos from being entered into evidence. Wow, she truly cannot see the forest through the trees this one, Schwartz realized he had to be extra vigilant about every single piece of evidence to put it in context for the jury by resisting ASCII's snide insinuations, realizing you cannot unring the bell. Once the juries heard it, they have heard it. On cross, Joel pointed out Leah had gotten Betsy to promise to answer her phone when Leah would call her from cellular one. The three calls from Leah to her mom went unanswered from 721, 726, and 730 that Tuesday evening. Why hadn't Betsy answered her phone? She promised to, but she didn't. aske called Betsy's sisters, Pamela and Mary, and asked them about Russ's poor treatment of Betsy in the past. On Christmas, Pamela said Betsy, quote, seemed tired and just not herself, end quote, which is very different from everyone's account taken immediately after Betsy's murder that she was so positive and upbeat. Mary's testimony was harsher than Pamela's, recounting a night six or seven years earlier when Russ and Betsy were arguing and the police were called. When asked if Russ and Betsy had gotten along better after her cancer diagnosis, Mary replied, quote, for a spell, end quote. Russ's mom, Lucy Faria, was called to the stand to cast doubt on Russ's game night alibi. Richard Hicks, adopting a friendly persona, asked if Russ called her and said he couldn't make their usual Tuesday night dinner. Yes, he had called and said he had some errands to run. So how often did this happen? Well, Lucy said, quote, oh, I'd say at least maybe twice a month, end quote. So it was not that unusual that Russ canceled like half the time. Okay, here we go. Then Pam Hupp, Betsy's friend, came to the stand. Pam made sure the jury knew that she was disabled, having lost some discs, with a plate in her neck. Oh, that was new. I thought we had balance issues and some memory issues, not cervical issues. Pam reviewed her friendship with Betsy, blooming at the insurance company. Richard Hicks and Pam revisited the horror show of Betsy and Russ's marriage. He was degrading and made Pam uncomfortable. Why had Pam gone to chemo when Betsy had asked her not to go? Quote, Selfishly, I went there to spend time with her. End quote and then drove her home. Arriving at Betsy's, they called husband Mark Hupp, leaving a voicemail. After chatting in the car, they went into the house with Betsy taking their dog, Cicely, outside. They were talking about Christmas, girl stuff, and they went into the bedroom. All in all, Pam testified she was there for 20-30 minutes. Betsy wanted her to stay until Russ got home, but Pam didn't want to be there. She left but was concerned that Betsy was annoyed with her, and she called her but got no answer. Joel immediately zeroed in on her contradictions, questioning why she was so insistent on driving Betsy, creating five separate trips back and forth between Betsy's mother, to the cancer center, back home, back to the mother's again, then to Betsy's, and then back to the hub house. All when Betsy didn't need a ride. Pam said Quote, yes, because she asked if I could just take her and then she would tell Russ, End quote. Schwartz put Pam squarely at the house with Betsy about the time of the murder. She agreed she'd called Mark at 7.04 p.m. from her car and agreed that at 7.24 was about the time she left. Had she told the police that she called Betsy to tell her she was home? Yes, Pam had. Mixing it up a bit, Schwartz asked, had she told police she didn't go in the house initially? Correct. And then you changed it and told them that you had gone inside and you'd been in this room and that, including the bedroom? Yes. But Pam said she didn't recall telling Janet Myers that she hadn't gone into the house. Did she tell police she called Betsy when she got home? Quote, that's not what I said. Are you certain? No. (laughs) She's not Richard Hicks asked for a sidebar, objecting to questioning that could lead to the suggestion Pam Huff was the killer. Schwartz insisted he was allowed to point out prior and inconsistent statements, and Joel wound up narrowing his questions to fit within the judge's narrow assessment. Joel read Pam's statement from the transcript, quote, "I called Betsy to tell her I was home end quote. Pam agreed it was accurate. She also agreed that it was impossible for her to be home at 727, so why had she said that to police? Quote, because that's not exactly what I meant. As we continued the conversation, what I said to them was that when I got out of her neighborhood, because I don't know Troy all that well, I get to the interstate, I give her a call, and always says, I'm home, which means I made it home free, end quote. Schwartz hoped the jury would see that for what it was, a failed effort in establishing an alibi, since it was very likely Betsy's death occurred between 7 and 7.20 p.m. The last time she saw Betsy, she was sitting on the sofa with a blanket watching TV, right? Joel asked. She was going to get cuddled up to watch a movie on the couch with her blanket, answered Pam. What did you tell police two days later when you talked with Detective Kaiser? I don't remember. Isn't it true you told her the last place you saw Betsy was at the front door waving? I don't remember. Joel hoped the jury caught the inconsistencies, the lying that had occurred, and asked themselves why all of that would be necessary. Why? Quote, towards the end of your interview, did you ask them, what time did this happen, this morning, And quote? I don't remember. This exchange referred to the phone call Pam made to her brother during the interview when she had said to him, quote, My friend, something happened to her last night, and I have two police officers here asking me questions, end quote. Uh, Do you recall that? Schwartz asked. Pam did. She actually remembered this one. Joel asked so, quote, Why did you ask them did this happen this morning? End quote. Pam says, quote, If I did, I just found out my good friend had been killed. Obviously, I did just say it. I have a little memory problem. I'm 55 and going through menopause, and it's been two years. I can't tell you every minute of what I've said about anything, honestly. End quote. Huh. Oh, well, that's convenient. Wait, didn't she say describing her disability was balance-related? Pam replied, yes, it was. Is the memory problem why Pam told police she didn't go inside? Is the memory problem why Pam told police she called Betsy when she got home? Quote, no, no, end quote. Oh, so it's not a memory problem. Or is it a memory problem? Or does anything Pam Hop says ever make sense? Pam agreed that Betsy had shown her the jewelry chest with the broken leg in the bedroom, where the bloody slippers and handprint were found. Bazinga! This pointed out to the jury that the broken leg did not stem from a struggle later that night. It was already broken before Lescahoun. On redirect, Richard Hicks asked Pam if she, quote, lied to police when she said she didn't go into the house and later she said she did, end quote. Pam replied, quote, never. I told them every room I was in and what we talked about. I was very upfront, end quote. And... Given the judge ordered restrictions on Pam's testimony, it was over. But Joel kept trying to get Judge mennon to allow questioning on life insurance in front of the jury. She never agreed. Asked about Betsy's insurance policy, Pam agreed Betsy had made her beneficiary, but surprise, denied knowing who the beneficiary was before which makes no sense. They went over why Betsy was changing the beneficiary, quote. She just wanted to change it to me. She didn't want whoever was on it. And we talked about Russ, and I assume it was Russ on it. But she didn't want him any longer, and she was changing all her policies, end quote. Pam agreed she may have told police that Betsy wanted her to give some money to her daughters when they were older. But she denied telling the insurance company that Betsy's daughter would get none of the money. Schwartz produced an affidavit from the insurance company business records department, quoting Pam as saying this to company officials. Quote, I don't think you know what you're talking about. quote. On redirect, Hicks asked Pam who brought up the insurance policy to the police. Quote, I did. They didn't know anything about it. End quote. Pam went on to explain how she set up the trust, spending $1,400 and then depositing 100000 in it for the girls, and 50000 went to a friend of hers with breast cancer with a 12-year-old daughter. Schwartz didn't argue it, but he knew the trust had literally been set up last week, right before the trial began. Pam Hupp is not altruistic. Her testimony wrapped up, and the jury would never hear about the evidence that potentially would incriminate Pam Hupp. Now, there's one guy in the audience listening to all of this, and he could not believe that Pam Hupp being Betsy's beneficiary, just days before the murder was being kept from the jury. This was Chris Haynes from Fox 2. I went back and I read all of his reports on the case, and he is a virtual encyclopedia on the Faria case. And there are links to a number of Chris Hayes' stories on my blog at www. MurderShelfBookclub.com. Hayes was thinking, what the hell's going on here? Asking Joel Schwartz, he directed Chris Hayes to the judge's decisions prohibiting the defense from presenting what appeared to be vital evidence in a murder case. Haynes was now invested in this case. The 911 call came up next. Both sides of the trial agreed that the actual 911 operator didn't need to testify, but her supervisor could. But when supervisor Margie Harrell began to testify, defense attorney Nate Swanson saw it running right into the ditch. Speaking to the judge in a sidebar, Swanson objected to supervisor Harrell, who had not taken the call herself, speaking about Russ's demeanor. She had no knowledge of Russ's demeanor. Hicks argued that with 16 years' experience, it was proper for Harrell to describe her observations. But she didn't have any observations. She didn't take the call. The judge agreed, though, and overruled Swanson's objection. Another puzzle piece. Esky asked Harold if she believed Russ was hysterical. Swanson objected, and the judge overruled him again. Harold thought that, at first, yes, but normally it's tough to derive information from a caller trying to get him or her to breathe, calm down, focus. In this case, Russ was hysterical, but you'd ask a question, and he'd answer, and the hysteria stopped. Then the question would be answered, and then he would resume hysteria. As he played the 911 recording for the jurors with the transcript projected on the wall for all to read, Russ looked down as he listened to his own raw emotion, reliving Finding Betsy, the shock, shattered, the horror all engulfing him. Joel had warned Russ not to be emotional in front of the jury, so he just remained stoic, staring at the floor. But Russ had to listen to the 911 call at CrimeCon, too, and I just cringed for him. That had to have been a tough one. Swanson cross-examined Harold, asking what the protocol was for dealing with hysterical callers. Well, the goal is to calm the caller by asking questions and requesting them to breathe. Well, since that was exactly what had occurred during the call, why had Harold labeled it as odd? Quote, I said it was odd in reference to hysteria when you're talking to someone trying to get them to calm down to be able to get good information. End quote. Swanson asked, quote, but that's what your training requires you to do, right? Quote, well, yes, that was what the training required them to do. End quote quote, that's what the dispatch person did, end quote, and Harold agreed yes. So what exactly was odd or suspicious about a call going like it should? Hmm. Officer Chris Hollingsworth, first on the scene, was then called to the stand. He quickly realized it wasn't a suicide and ushered Russ out of the house to the porch. Fearing he might go into shock in the cold air, he put Russ in his patrol car and the two men spoke for an hour or so about the fluorescent Hazelwood area where they both had grown up. When Bubblehead Road came up, Russ joked that he, quote, used to take women up there and scare the hell out of them, end quote. Askey confirmed, quote, he was laughing, end quote. He characterized Russ as speaking normally, laughing, and jovial. Schwartz began the cross-examination by having Hollingsworth repeat all the steps he'd taken to calm the visibly upset Russ. He then asked Hollingsworth how much grieving Russ went through in 2009 after Betsy's cancer diagnosis, with Hollingsworth having no idea, which triggered another round of objections with the defense losing. Schwartz switched topics, getting Hollingsworth to admit. And if he came into Betsy's home and was looking to the left at the garage door, he could not see Betsy's body on the floor, on the right, in the living room. That was a win. Lead medic Mike Quattrochoke told the jury that Betsy Faria's body was cold and stiff, and her blood was dried when he was in the home when cross-examined by Nate Swanson. He asked Quattrochoke what a stiff body meant, and he answered, quote, that she had been down for quite a while, end quote. Like a couple hours? Quattrochocchi said, well, yeah. Quattrochocchi also testified that he did not get blood on his hands and knees when he knelt down to check the body. Neither had rest, remember? Of significance was Quattrochocchi's report, indicating he had arrived at the home at nine fifty-one, eleven 11 minutes after the 911 call was placed. All right, true fact. 11 minutes is not enough time for a body to go cold and for rigor mortis to set in. Prosecutor Richard Hicks focused on Quattrochocchi recognizing it wasn't a suicide when he arrived. Lieutenant Mark Shimwig of the St. Peter's Police Department explained the nitty-gritty of how the Major Case Squad, which is a multi-jurisdictional organization of local police departments, usually in homicide investigations. Lieutenant Schwimmig said that the police have a limited time to get formal charges from the prosecuting attorney before they have to release a suspect, which is what happened with when the charges were initially dropped. The warrants they had applied for had been refused. Now that tells me the evidence was lacking. Schwimmig agreed that the more evidence you have, the less chance of making a mistake and arresting the wrong guy. He also confirmed that several detectives interviewed Russ several times, as well as going to locations, interviewing other people, including everyone from game night, to check his alibi. The game players confirmed that everyone was where they said they were during the time Betsy was murdered. Schwartz asked why Pam Hupp's location and clothing were not similarly investigated and confirmed. Objection! From Hicks, and the judge agreed. One prejudicial decision after another, with no end in sight. Another puzzle piece drops, and then Joel was filing his third motion for mistrial, Askey asked Ashwin if the game players had taken polygraphs. Well, no, they had not. Ashwin wanted it on the record that these witnesses refused polygraphs. Objection! Schwartz argued that they were never formally asked to take polygraphs and polygraphs were inadmissible in court. And this was incredibly prejudicial with the jury. If they wanted to go down the refusal to take a polygraph path, Joel would recall Pam Hupp. Recall, Pam Hupp got the doctor's note to say she couldn't take the polygraph, although it was later revealed that there was absolutely no medical reason that she could not. So if you think a lot of BS is going on here, this will be the piece de resistance. Hicks now argues that quote, Pam Hupp couldn't be asked about not taking a polygraph because case law said that except for the defendant, refusal by a witness to take a polygraph could not be used to impeach the witness. End quote. What? Did Askey just try to do this exact same thing to the four gaming friends? To impeach them for not taking the polygraph? She did. The hypocrisy is astounding. Hicks is saying it is appropriate, which is not, to ask some witnesses about refusing a polygraph, but not Pam Hub, his witness. Asky said she'd withdraw the question. But not good enough, said Schwartz. He wanted a mistrial. Ned and Meyer instructed the jury to disregard the last question and deny the request for mistrial. What a travesty. Here's another puzzle piece. The blood next. The bloody slipper, the switch plate, the knife in Betsy's neck, and all the photos of her body in the house. Crime scene technician Amy Pratt from the St. Charles County Sheriff's Department testified that she and other techs spent about six to eight hours collecting evidence. The photo of the bloody switch plate seemed to show a pattern in the blood. The bloody slippers had been tossed on the floor in the bedroom closet. Pratt identified photos that she'd snapped of Cicely, the Faria's dog, as detectives took fur samples and paw prints to compare to the bloody paw print Ashley claimed were imprinted on the hip of Betsy's pants. Nate Swanson's questioning of Pratt got her to admit that the switch plate pattern appeared to be a crosshatch pattern, which could have been made by fabric. Quote, So someone likely touched that switch plate with a piece of the bloody fabric and left a stain? End quote. Objection, speculation, and sustained. Swanson moved to the bloody slippers. Was there any way for blood to get on them besides stepping in blood? Pratt responded, well, that's a good question, as she didn't know how the slippers got into the closet, as there were no bloody footprints at the scene. Swanson had Pratt read directly from the Blue Star lab test results, which concluded that no blood was found. And this triggered another objection from ASCII. Who challenged this based on who could and couldn't state what the test results were. What? Swanson argued that Judge Menemeyer had already prohibited the state from saying a positive reaction from the tests on the kitchen floor indicated that there could have been blood there. But she ruled the defense could elicit testimony that a negative reaction proved there was no blood. The problem is you can have false positives here. Judge Menemeyer ordered a break without ruling. No, 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 no. That's unfair. That is not right because during a break, it gives the prosecution time to confer with Pratt about what her testimony is going to be. Judge Menemeyer agreed, but there was nothing prohibiting Pratt and Askey from conferring. So the recess happened anyway. This is really a friggin' disaster. Break over. The judge reiterated the prohibition on the prosecution because of false positives. They could present evidence that Blue Star testing had produced a positive response, but they could not say it meant blood was present. First question Swanson asked, if Pratt had spoken with the prosecution during break? Yes, yes she had, as we all knew would happen unfairly and unjustly. They discussed that while Pratt did not write the report, she conducted the tests and described the results. Swanson asked if the alleged paw print showed no sign of reaction. It did react, announced Pratt. Swanson was not happy, responding, quote, that's not what the report says, end quote. Pratt now said, and I am quoting from Bone Deep, quote, the negative results meant that they had not been able to enhance the image they believed was a paw print, It did not mean there was no reaction to the test for blood. She doesn't know if there was blood because that would have been determined by a different test. End quote. Well, that was a new twist. Swanson now pushed harder and got an uncomfortable Pratt to agree to, one, that she did not know if the alleged paw print mark was blood. Two, did not know how old it was. Three, did not have a clue how it had gotten on Betsy's pants. And four, they weren't sure it was a paw print. so the dog wasn't walking through Betsy's blood, and Russ hadn't lied about the dog being outside when he got home. Got it. Well, this is just insane to me. Does anyone have a dog? If they walk in mud, do they leave a single paw print on the floor? Just one No, no four, not four prints from each paw, but just one single paw print. Cicely is not a floating, hovering dog. Hanging it above the rug. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Detective Mike Muckle took the stand, speaking on the Blue Star testing in the Faria kitchen. After a tussle about the fact that Merkel's report was written 15 months after the murder, this report was also not given to the defense, violating rules of discovery. So, Merkel explained that on January 3rd, 2012, they hadn't tested the entire kitchen, but followed a trail of positive reactions. Spots on the floor and near the dining room table reacted, quote, with a positive chemical luminescence, end quote, as did in front of the drawer in the kitchen where the hand towels were kept. Schwartz reminded Detective Merkel that the free at home had been returned to Russ on December 29, 2011, with Merkel agreeing. Was there any prohibition against the family cleaning the house or anyone else? No, there was not. By the way, Blue Star testing can react positively when exposed to cleaning agents, as Merkel also admitted. Merkel testified that the photos taken that day showed, quote, absolutely nothing, end quote, because the camera malfunctioned. Well, that was convenient, right? Schwartz asked about Russ's behavior in the interview room during questioning at the police station. Did Russ know he was being recorded? No, he had not been informed about the video, which shows Russ sobbing and wailing, falling to his knees, banging his head on the wall, grieving, and praying when left alone. Now, that sounds like a man grieving when he's left alone with his thoughts. Of course, Russ could be faking it, but for no one, because he doesn't know he's being videoed so he doesn't know anyone's going to see him faking it, which again makes no sense. Markle told the jury that the police confirmed everything Russ told them about his activities on that day and the evening of the murder. The CT videos of Russ confirmed the clothing he was wearing, which was later seized, which had no blood on them. The crime scene photos showed only a few drops of blood to where Russ claimed to have laid down next to Betsy. But wait, if the... Droplets of blood were fresh. Wouldn't they have gotten on Russ and they didn't? Next up was Dr. Kamal Dersavoral, the medical examiner. At issue was a very controversial theory called cadaveric spasm. The theory is that a body undergoing extreme strain or emotions just before death could immediately enter rigor mortis that is the stiffening of the muscles and tissue that develops normally two to four hours after death, depending on temperature. The colder, the slower the rigor mortis develops. A not fun fact, cadaveric spasm can be distinguished from rigor mortis, as cadaveric spasm is a stronger stiffening of the muscles that cannot be easily undone, as can happen with rigor mortis. This was how Ascian Hicks were attempting to explain Betsy's body being in rigor, supposedly 10 minutes after her murder. Judge Menemeyer already rejected Schwartz's motion for a special hearing to take scientific and medical testimony on whether cadaveric spasm met legal standards as evidence at the trial. Hicks agreed now that there was no scientific measure or test to determine if this had happened and that it was an incredibly rare phenomenon. The thing is... Dr. Savarol supported it. Schwartz went on the attack. Looking at photos, Savarol testified, quote, The area where there is a lot of blood would have taken longer than minutes. That would take some time to dry up or coagulate, Dr. Savarol also admitted that cadaveric spasm would not explain the cooling of Betsy's body. Had Dr. Savarol ever seen a cadaveric spasm? No, he had never seen a case of it. Could he prove a basis for believing it occurred in this case? No, he could not. Given the 55 wounds to Betsy, would there be more blood evidence at the scene? Dr. savarol agreed that there would be more blood and someone stabbing her would have blood on him or her. Major Ray Floyd of the Troy Police Department testified in a manner that made it appear Russ was adamant that Betsy had committed suicide. And Russ had acknowledged that he'd received three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars from Betsy's life insurance policies, making it sound as like if Russ hadn't offered up this information trying to help the investigation. Major Floyd also said Russ told him that Betsy's friend, Pam Hupp, was a nice lady. Countering in his cross, Schwartz began to apply context to Floyd's statements. Had Russ said he thought how Betsy died, Was not the typical way people commit suicide? And had he hoped that she had not taken her own life? Floyd admitted that yes, this was true. Joel delved into the length of Russ's interview. How long had Russ been up when Floyd spoke to him? 36 hours. Next up was insurance agent Lee Lester, who testified that Russ called him four days after Betsy's death about collecting the insurance money. The prosecution believed this went to breed as Russ's motive, but Schwartz had Lester reveal that Russ wanted money to pay for his wife's funeral and only called at the suggestion of the funeral director. Lester said Russ also seemed genuinely surprised that this would be delayed due to the investigation, that is, him getting insurance money. The cell tower evidence. An analysis of Russ's cell phone calls showed two calls between 5 and 9 p.m. on December 27, 2011. The outgoing call was at 5.22 p.m. to Russ's mom. The incoming call at 8.57 p.m. from Betsy's mother Janet, which went to voicemail. According to the Major Case Squad Technical Operation Group Captain Michael Wang. Russ had listened to Janet Meyer's voicemail. Challenging this, Swanson asked if Janet's calls to Russ's phone would have still been connected to voicemail for another 30 seconds. Reversing himself, Lang said, quote, it could be a call to voicemail. It just wouldn't be able to retrieve the voicemail yet, end quote. So there's no evidence, then, that Russ ever listened to the message from Janet Meyer. Lang said no, directly contradicting his testimony moments earlier. Did the jury pick up on this? Wait and see. Swanson also read the 3.46 p.m. text exchange between Russ and Betsy, with Betsy telling Russ, quote, she offered and I accepted, end quote, referring to Pam Hupp driving her home, which contradicted Pam's earlier testimony. Now, everyone loves a trial with DNA. So the jury did learn that the DNA found on Russ's slippers was his. I have to tell you for the record, just to be open here. I have my DNA on my slippers too. I know, we're shocked. But there is a one in 178 quadrillion shot that the blood on the slippers was Betsy's. Daniel Faunenshock, the crime scene lab DNA tech, described the blood on the slippers as droplets, not smears or transfers. Faunenshock was asked how old the blood was on the slippers. He didn't know. Did he know how it got there? He didn't know. DNA material from Betsy's finger clippings were mostly Betsy's, with an allele that is a small particle of DNA that wasn't from Russ, but was too small to identify who it belonged to. It could be an unknown persons. It also could have gotten there from normal daily interactions. The rape kit, which is always processed in cases such as this, showed Betsy and Russ had had sex based on the eight sperms that were in Betsy's vagina that the lab yielded. This matched Russ's statement that they had had sex on Sunday night. And the state rested. And that concludes episode 41, Can't See the Forest Through the Trees, on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the tragic Bessie Perea murder case by Charles Boswick Jr. and Joel Schwartz. In the next episode, 42, The Bell Cannot Be Unrung, this is a game-changer. Russ Faria's trial continues, with Joel Schwartz pressing onward, trying the case with both arms tied behind his back by the judge. But presenting actual evidence will make a difference, right? When the outrageous trial catches the attention of a fair-minded reporter who cannot make sense of what the jury is denied hearing, the stakes will change immeasurably. Make sure you follow the journey that Russ Faria must take, because the twists and turns are simply unbelievable. Just subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And Murder Bookies, my next book is American Predator by journalist Maureen Callahan. And this one is frightening. For 14 years, Israel Keyes was one of the most ambitious and terrifying serial killers in modern history. And he went unnoticed, totally flying under the radar, literally described as a prosecutor as a quote, force of pure evil, end quote. Keyes is a predator who struck all over the United States where he buries kill kits, cash, weapons, body disposal tools in remote locations across the country. Terrifying, he abducts his victims in broad daylight and kills and disposes of them in mere hours. And then he'd return home to Alaska, resuming his life as a quiet, reliable construction worker devoted to his only daughter. Thank you for listening. Please sign the A Ramsey petition if you already haven't, it is linked to my blog, but you can find it at www.change.org backslash justice jbr It asks the Colorado governor to take the DNA from Boulder PD and to give it to an independent lab to do genetic genealogy. It is time. Also, can you please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee? I am now on Buy Me a Coffee. The link is on my blog. And you know where that is. And both of these will really help me grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email if you have any thoughts or comments. I love hearing from you. Follow me or subscribe to my show anywhere that you can find podcasts. Let my episodes pop into your feed. And until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material and snack and drink or Bone Deep Trilogy is found on my blog, too. Thanks, guys. Be safe. Cuddle up a little closer Love ain't mine Cuddle up and be mine Cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love them hair.